everybody, and welcome to From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez, and here we are at the second half of our season finale for season three. And let's just say, in watching this second half, I gagged. Season three has not failed in delivering. And so I don't want to get too far ahead of the game because we do have a slight recap, but wow, season three. So previously on Little House on the Prairie in Gold Country, torrential rains have caused the Ingalls and Edwards, Snyder, and Sanderson crew to leave Walnut Grove and head out for a gold rush located out near Deadwood, South Dakota. On route, they meet up with a Ben Griffin and family and a Mr. Delano and family. Moving past Deadwood and into Newton, this caravan of four settles out near Shadow Creek to start panning for gold. One day, Laura and Carl meet an old hermit who lives in a cabin along the creek, who gives them fair warning that gold can change people and not for the good. And just as that warning is given, Mary brings Laura and Carl back to camp where Charles and Mr. Edwards have claimed their own bit of gold. And with that being said, let's get started on today's recap. Today's episode is entitled Gold Country, Part 2, Part B, the second half. And I'm imagining everything is still the same with the premiere date, since it is set as a long-run episode, which did debut on April 4th, 1977. Again, the episode was written by John Hawkins and B.W. Sanfier and directed by Michael Landon. We begin on a set of scales, measuring out the weight of the gold. We're informed the gold collected is 98% pure. And how much have Charles and Mr. Edwards received? $126. Minus the $2 for all the assessment work of the gold by our assayer, Andy Anderson. That's kind of cute. Mr. Delano and Mr. Griffith are also in the office. They don't have their own gold. They're just there for support. And it's actually Mr. Delano who runs outside the office to announce the gold which I'm not sure if that was the smartest idea. Mr. Delano is very indiscreet, and Mr. Griffin actually tries to tell him to keep it down a little bit, but Mr. Delano's not having it. He wants to actually share the news about good fortune. And well, it's nice to know he started things off with some good intentions. And apparently, Charles also wants to share the good fortune with everyone, and he announces where his claim site is located. And with that news the town completely clears out. We find ourselves back at camp. Dinner is being served. We are informed that more gold has actually been acquired. And as they're sitting down for supper, Charles notices some more people across the creek arriving. Mr. Edwards then states how they better find a good hiding spot for their own gold. Charles, trying to think in the positive, mentions this isn't like Deadwood. But Mr. Edwards still admits strangers are strangers just the same. It's unlike Walnut Grove here. There's no reason to hide anything. 
except for maybe my jug of. He immediately stops. Dinner is then interrupted from yells from Mr. Delano. It's nothing wrong. He just happened to hit pay dirt right now as well. And although we don't see the nuggets, Charles and Mr. Edwards' expression seems to imply that the gold Mr. Delano has found is quite plentiful. And Mr. Delano's continuing how he can now move on to California and get a farm so he can make some vino. Mamma mia! His words, not mine. Hearing all of this news, Laura, Dad burn it. She's upset that only the adults get to find gold. Then, boom, it hits her. Zachariah has a big claim, and he's old. Maybe he needs help. And if we help him, we could get a small share of his cut. Carl looks over to Laura and just says it. He kind of scares me. Laura looks back at Carl and flat out states, fine, stay here. And she gets up to head over to Zachariah's. When Carl reluctantly puts down his plate and heads after Laura while announcing, I can't let you go alone. You're just a girl. We find ourselves back over at Zachariah's. And he's actually quite happy to see this pair of Laura and Carl. You want more apples? Laura says no thank you because she's here to talk business. And she relays about what is happening along the creek all over again. And he mentions, yeah, I've seen people up and down all day long. Laura then relays a plan about helping him pan out some fortune in the creek. And this is when Zachariah states, everything I wanted is beneath the creek. Come with me. Zachariah escorts them to the shores of the creek, and we look closer at a rock in the middle. It's different than all the other rocks. It's slightly green. And not only that, on the stone, the name Lorraine is engraved. All I ever wanted, all I ever needed, is here. We then get more of Zachariah's backstory and how he came here 20 years ago and dug out three mines. His wife, who would spend her days in the creek with her feet in the water, would always tell him that what they have is enough. We don't need more gold. But according to Zachariah, he wanted to have enough gold to buy her anything. She died shortly after they came to Shadow Creek. She didn't even make it a year. And Zachariah states that he did have enough to buy her anything. Almost anything. Pointing down into the water, Zachariah states, She's there, on a bed made of gold. And here I must remain, forever. He leaves. Laura, unfortunately, has some of those unmoving, crusty tears stuck on her face. We cut to late night at the Ingalls Edwards Snyder Sanderson campout. Charles and Caroline are by the fire, having a, well, who knows what time, conversation. The talk is going around about the amount of gold Mr. Delano has found. And apparently, Mr. Griffith has not found any. It's at this time Caroline brings up the subject about 
How long do they plan on continuing to stay here? Charles, oh, until we have enough gold. Caroline, I wonder if people know when they have enough. At this time, Caroline reminds us, as if we had time to forget, about everything we know about Zachariah. She then follows that up with, Will we be out of here by winter? And according to Charles, maybe. I have a chance now, and I'm never going to get this chance again. Charles is changing. Andy's also a little tired. He informs Caroline that he's heading off to bed, and is she going to join? Caroline shakes her head, says no, but she'll be there in a little while. Without even looking at him, it's definitely an argument that had zero raised voices. We cut back to Newton. Caroline and Grace and all the children are walking down the street. There is now saloon music playing. And not only that, Laura and Carl are busy pointing out all the guns they can now see. They're all heading to church. Our reverend, who's still unnamed at this time, mentions that there are so many new people moving in. However, he's not entirely sure they are all churchgoers. From off screen, we get the line, I've heard that bowl for the last time out of you. And then a fight breaks out. Looking at the spectacle, Nameless Reverend tells Grace and Caroline that the men, they respect the church tent and that we are safe if we go inside. At this time, Grace mentions how she has to head to the store to pick up a few more supplies. And so Caroline and the children head inside. She's actually come to chat with this reverend to help keep the kids entertained, I guess. The reverend hands them a bag of peppermint sticks. And Caroline then has her one-on-one -on -one with the reverend. And what is it that she would like to talk about? Schooling. Caroline says they need a place to hold classes. And obviously, Reverend No Name offers the church tent. We only need it on Sundays and Wednesday evenings. And he continues, it's starting to feel like a town here. And we'll make the announcement at Sunday service about the school. As they are getting ready to leave, Laura stops and says, Thank you for the peppermint sticks, Reverend Phillips. Thank you, Laura. Outside, they meet up with Grace, who shares the news that the prices are about five times they were a week ago. Caroline shares how they have a place to have school. Carl complains, but Mary, I wouldn't mind it. And Laura, looking at her sister, says, You would say that. We cut to Sunday, because Charles and Mr. Edwards are back at the creek, but Caroline comes in to scene to say we don't want to be late for church. Charles leaves his station, and he heads over to Mr. Edwards, and they start talking about what they plan to do this afternoon once they come back from church. Off screen, Caroline calls out, once again for Charles and Mr. Edwards to come along. We find ourselves in that church tent, and it's packed. It's also at this time Caroline shares the news about opening the school. Mr. Delano then states how Reverend Philip is a young and shy reverend, 
and he hasn't even bothered to ask about the collection. Mr. Delano continues that some people who have moved in the area most likely don't have funds just yet, but there are some of us, aka himself, who have struck it good, and those who have extra should make up for those who do not. And after saying that, Mr. Delano pulls out a small stack with gold and puts it in the collection plate. Reverend Phillips is wide-eyed and says, thank you, that's very gracious of you. Now let's sing Rock of Ages. Clef for me. They sing a few verses of the song while Mr. Delano is handing out the collection plate. We find ourselves back at camp and it's back to panning according to Charles. Caroline, you're not working on the Lord's Day. Charles, uh, well, the sooner we get rich, the sooner the Reverend will have his church. It's almost like doing the Lord's work. This sentence is then punctuated by a gunshot. Everyone freezes. Then Mr. Edwards yells out, the Delanos. And it sounds like as we are approaching the scene, Mr. Delano's name is Vittorio, because that is what Maria Delano is saying over and over. Charles and Mr. Edwards find Mr. Delano on his back right by the banks of the creek. He has a gunshot wound on his right side. Mr. Griffin is coming into the scene from the background, and as they get Mr. Delano farther away from the shore and open his shirt... We never see what it is, but their expression tells us it is not good. In fact, Maria Delano turns and heads towards Grace and Caroline for comfort. Lying on his back, Vittorio Delano says, Son, my son, they wanted the gold, but I didn't tell them where it is. You take the gold and your mama, and go to California. You take the grapes, you make the vino, you be happy. And looking at his son, he says, Bachome. It means kiss me. Sam Delano leans down and kisses his father, and when he pulls back, Vittorio Delano is gone. P.S. Sam Delano has real tears, mixed in with a number of those crusty ones. As I watch the scene, I hope it's starting to sink into Charles that it just might be time to go. We cut to the caravan. They've buried Mr. Delano. This fellowship has fallen apart. Charles tells Caroline that he's going to stay and help Mrs. Delano get ready to leave. He then tells her that they need to get back to the camp and start packing. Caroline, we're going home. Facepalm. Charles tells him, no, I'm just renting you a place in town. You know, a safe and proper place to live. There's no huff that precedes her fine, but there definitely should be. And we cut into town, and the assayer is also a landlord. He informs everyone that it's $100 a month. WTF, according to Mr. Edwards, at that price, it ought to have red velvet curtains. Or maybe plush. Charles says it's just for a couple of days of work. And then he's informed that the house is rented 
for a minimum of two months. Well, still not really ready to give up the ghosts, Mr. Edwards and Charles hand over the money. And counting those bills, the assayer says, if you need anything, just call. And Mr. Edwards, not being discreet, yells out, I'll make sure what the price tag is before I call you. And just as he is getting ready to leave, Andy Anderson, our assayer slash landlord, stops and then makes an offer to buy out the claims from Charles and Mr. Edwards. You know, to save you from trouble, Charles says no, and he sets out to start unpacking the wagon. And Caroline, with her arms crossed, Charles, you sure about this? Charles, well, I buried a man today. That makes me sure that I don't want you and the girls at Shadow Creek. But actually, Caroline is referencing selling the claims. Well, one thing about living in town, Caroline is a lot closer to that school. And we find herself at school, and it's hard to focus with all the loudness outside. We're told the children must share supplies and that they are starting off with sums. Caroline asked Janie to solve the problem. I'm assuming this is Ben Griffin's daughter. Laura, however, doesn't give Janie a chance because she yells out the answer. Caroline then erases a few of the digits and replaces them and tells Janie to try again. However, the class is then interrupted by gunshots. And all the kids get up out of their seats and they run to the door. Ugh, Caroline is not winning. She orders the kids back to their seats. Right now! She looks outside and Newton is starting to look a little like Deadwood. Sex workers included. Caroline is just annoyed. Back at Shadow Creek, Charles and Mr. Edwards are busy working. And that's when Mr. Edwards states, oh, That's the one thing about working for yourself. There's no one to tell you when to take a rest. And he heads over to the banks to get his canteen, which is also located right next to a prominently placed rifle. It's at this time, two men on horseback show up. They are rather shady fellows. How you doing? Mr. Edwards lets it be known that they are doing fine. Thank you. But these shady men on horseback, not talking about your health. You find any color? Charles states that they just started. They haven't found anything. One of the men on the horse offers to take a look inside the rocker box. And this is when Mr. Edwards grabs and aims that rifle. Oh, that's no need. We know what we're doing. Man on the horse, just trying to be friendly. Mr. Edwards, well, I don't know you. So you ain't my friend. You should go visit somewhere else. And if you move your hand one more inch, folks are going to be panning for you just to find enough to bury. The man on the horse stops what he's doing, and Mr. Edwards says, Goodbye. These shady men on horses turn and leave. Charles, looking at his friend, we best keep that shotgun around. Mr. Edwards, yeah, we better load it too. Which, that does sound like a good idea, but also not. Ask Charles. 
about the dangers of leaving a loaded gun around. The Hunters, earlier this season. Back in town, it's late at night. Charles and Mr. Edwards are arriving home, and Mr. Edwards states he's too tired for stew and he is heading straight to bed. Charles stays up for a moment and also says he's not hungry, but he wouldn't mind having some coffee. Caroline is sharing her day with Charles. Between the gunshots and the shouting, the kids might have learned something. Charles shares that they're back into black sand, back at the creek. Caroline smiles and convinces Charles that he does need to have something to eat. And while finishing making his plate and turning around, Charles is passed out in bed. We cut to the next day at school. It's actually a quiet day. Some of the children are working on their tablets, and some are reading the McGuffey Reader. And this is when a drunk man enters the space and says, I'm sorry, I'm late for class. He really has no class. I want some learning. And he begins to approach Caroline, and she backs up until she is up against the post of the church school tent. And I can't help but wonder if she's having flashbacks to being accosted by the Gatlin brothers back in the Bully Boys. And the kids, they're all just watching. You know, I might have expected Laura to use her tablet to smack this man around. But no, instead, Mr. Griffin comes in to stop the situation. Well, actually, not really stop the situation. He's just come to gather Janie because they are leaving. They have found enough of their own gold. And this drunk man then inquires, Where did you find it? He's informed Shadow Creek. And the drunk man then inquires if he can look at the gold. And I have no idea why Mr. Griffin even acknowledges this man. But he pulls out that bag and he lets this drunk man look at the gold. You didn't get this out of a creek. That's quartz gold. You didn't get it out of the creek. You mined it. Laura is now 100% invested in this conversation because she knows the truth. And looking at Mr. Griffin, Laura states, You weren't mining for gold. You were panning just like my pa. Mr. Griffin grabs a hold of Janie and they hurry out. Laura yells out, You didn't go near Mr. Zacharias. And in his final words, Mr. Griffin states, My wife is waiting. Goodbye. Laura is in a panic. I know he did, Ma. I know he went to Mr. Zachariah's. And she bolts out of that school to head over to Zachariah's. Caroline then inquires to Carl if he knows where Zachariah lives. And of course he does. And she tells him to find Charles, tell him what happened, and to head over to Zachariah's. And we cut to Laura at the creek, and she is racing across it, and she goes up those stairs. She looks inside, and she finds Zachariah. You told them about the gold! Laura, in her defense, I didn't think they would do something like this. Zachariah, you didn't listen to me! All I could give Lorraine was a place to sleep and to be at peace. She doesn't even have that anymore. Thrown on the riverbanks like a piece of driftwood. I took everything from her 
and now I can't give anything back. And Zachariah looks at Laura and tells her to get out. And he continues to scream this over and over. P.S. Zachariah has hair in his hands. He is holding on to his wife's body, which, not to sound gross, but after 20 years, I'm surprised it's that intact. We cut to Charles on a hillside. He's looking down to find Laura on the banks of what I'm still guessing is Shadow Creek. He approaches her and calls out. And Laura, with tears in her eyes, crusty ones, she runs and falls into his arms. I thought Mr. Griffin was a good man. And yes, it is confirmed. Laura came across Zachariah holding on to his wife's body. And Laura, we can't leave him like that. Charles instructs Laura to head back into town, and he's going to help take care of Zachariah. And as Laura is heading out, she turns and asks Pa, please ask him for me to forgive me. Charles confirms that he will, and he heads over to Zachariah's and holy spit, for the second time this season, Charles comes across a cabin engulfed in flames. And again, now I have to wonder, is he having his own flashbacks about his father? Charles runs towards the cabin and starts yelling into the flames for Zachariah. But there is no answer because he is truly now with his wife. We cut to Charles setting a stone in the creek with the name Zachariah engraved on it. And it's placed side by side with Lorraine's. We cut to late night in Newton. It's a crazy night at the Palace Hotel. Charles comes into the scene and he looks at the situation. Drunkenness, brawling, sex workers, people having their own kind of fun. And Charles, he heads over to the church tent. It's Wednesday evening. Charles enters just in time for the service to start. As he has a seat, Laura looks at him and inquires if Zachariah is all right. Charles lets Half Pint know, Zachariah, he decided to go away and he's not angry with you anymore. Laura, with a smile, turns her attention forward and the camera pans to Charles and his eyes are giving him away and Caroline can tell that Charles had to deal with a very unpleasant situation. Reverend Phillips then announces that after a moment of silence, he actually would like to hear other people's thoughts and feelings about God. He then calls out Charles Ingalls and says, your wife says that you speak at your church back at Walnut Grove all the time. Would you please? Oh boy, Charles is on the spot, but he gets up and looking out at the crowd, he admits, I'm not used to such a large crowd or all the noise. He continues by saying, I know it's not customary to ask what people pray for, but how many of you tonight asked to strike it rich? No one raises their hands. 
And looking out at the crowd, Charles states, If we're going to be in church, you think we ought to be honest with things? In fact, he tells everyone there that I did when I first came here. After hearing this, Mr. Edwards' hand goes up, as do a few more. Charles continues, I never asked for that before. I only used to pray for health and happiness. When you come to a place like this, you change. Some more than others. Some people around you change. The wealth of gold? How do you know when you have enough? Its wealth will just become less and less because the real wealth is for the loved ones and friends. Even God. I ask God for the strength to forget about gold and to turn my back on it and let me take my family home. And he has given me that strength and we are going home tomorrow. God be with you all. Charles then takes his seat and Reverend gets up and gets behind that podium and <laughs> that is how you move a crowd, Reverend Phillips. You've got plenty to learn. Reverend Phillips then finishes up with an amen, because really, he's not going to top that. We cut to the next day. Maybe. And what we see are two wagons heading east. And they come across one wagon heading west. As these wagons meet up, the single wagon has a young couple on there, and they're asking if Newton is far away. Their plan is they're going to strike it rich. Charles lets them know that Newton is just over the hill and wishes them good luck. This young couple then inquires to Charles, well, did you guys hit it big? Did you have any luck? Charles then puts his hand on Caroline's knee, looks at her, and looks back at the couple. Yes, yes, we did. With a smile on their face, this young couple looks at the Ingalls, Edwards, Snyder, and Sanderson, caravan and says well maybe it's our turn now as well you say it's a couple more hours to get there charles confirms all right well thank you and good luck to you i think the only thing that was missing during this little conversation was i don't know maybe a little bit of a warning oh whatever i don't think it would change their minds they just look young and in love and our final shot is one wagon heading one direction, the other two heading in the opposite. And the camera slowly, slowly zooms out. And that is season three of Little House on the Prairie. I actually feel that this scene is a nice little cliffhanger. I mean, if Little House was not continued after this season, we could have at least had that feeling that, ah, the Ingalls are all making it back home. Or we could also just say that everyone caught some sort of sickness and died on the way home. But no, Little House was renewed for another season. I guess one thing I would like to bring up as a little bit of trivia before we get into our rating and review of this episode is earlier when I had mentioned Zachariah's wife being pretty intact after 20 years underwater. That's actually not surprising. Doing a little research, such contributions that increase or decrease 
the rate of decomposition, the two main factors, of course, being the depth the body is in the water and the temperature of the water itself. Zachariah stated he buried her into the creek, but then the questions I have to ask are, how deep was she buried? And two, how do you dig up a gravesite in the middle of a creek with running water? I mean, I guess he could have dammed it off for a little time. I'm not entirely sure. But even still, after 20 years, I feel as though this body should be somewhat more decomposing. Anyway, didn't want to get too morbid about that, but also a quick thank you to articles on Ranker.com as well as TheGuardian.com and Decomposition Changes in Bodies Recovered from Water, an article written by James Carus, MD, that I located on on the National Library of Medicine.gov. P.S. Don't go looking for that article. There are pictures. So with that, let's go ahead and finally get to reviewing and rating this episode. And again, we're going to talk about the episode in its entirety. The first part of this episode was actually pretty tame. I mean, not that they were dealing with climate change, but, but severe weather back in the day was most likely a thing, and there was little to be done about it. So in this case, with the Ingalls and Edward Snyder Sanderson's having to leave Walnut Grove, again, that seems on par. So I guess in leaving the safety of Walnut Grove, it doesn't seem surprised that this episode contains more drunkenness than we've ever seen before, sex workers, murder, another suicide by burning the house down, and lastly, desecrating a body that's been resting for 20 years just to dig up some gold. When I started watching this series, these were things I never thought I would get a chance to see out on the prairie. This episode has, well, actually not just the episode, there have been a few episodes during this season that have really highlighted that Charles is not always that fatherly safe figure that we have perceived to be. After Mr. Delano was murdered, he should have left, but no, he chose to stay and was almost put in the same situation as Mr. Delano when those two shady men on horseback arrived at their claim site. It's never enough. There's got to be more. Actually, I think I see where Laura gets it now. Our hermit, Zachariah, he was an interesting layer to the story as well, letting us know that history repeats itself, but I just can't help but wonder about those apples. He said they were always on his porch. Where do they come from? And in regards to that, it's interesting that he, just like Charles's dad, Lansford Ingalls, doesn't want to leave his wife's final resting place. As well, of course, torching the house down. And you know, to each their own and everything, but if I was Charles and Laura came running back to me telling me of a hermit who lived in a cabin and has been there for a number of years and it proceeds to be really, really dirty, even though he lives right by a creek, I would say, Laura, please don't go back there. And even more so, once things started to get busy around Shadow Creek, I would definitely be keeping those young ones nearby. So this whole thing could have been avoided in the first place. And I wonder what led Mr. Griffin 
to the idea that digging up a body for gold wasn't going to haunt him. The man has no conscience, apparently. And I know Caroline probably feels as though it's very kind of her to start this school, but she's already aware that at some point she'll be heading back to Walnut Grove as well. So kind of a little educational tease there. And did anyone else kind of notice how Grace just kind of disappeared on the second half of this episode? However, the one thing I wish that had disappeared throughout this entire episode was all these extensively long takes. The reason why this is a long run episode is partially because of so many of them throughout. And also throughout this long run episode, I had to find our final Little House moment for season three. And it might seem a little controversial, but this moment goes to the death of Vittorio Delano. And yes, this might come as a little bit of a shock because we've had a number of deaths on the series up to this point, all starting back with Jack Peters, explosive expert, sadly, extraordinaire, way back in season one in the 100 mile walk. Heck, even in season one, we had Miss Amy Hearn faking her own death. Following up in the plague episode, we even had a child pass away there. So in season one, we saw accidental natural causes, potentially, and environmental. Season two, yes, we had Julia Sanderson, but near the end of season two, things definitely got a little dark when we had Granville Whipple's suicide in A Soldier's Return. And here, we had our first murder. This is the first time we have had a character pass away in the story due directly because of somebody else. And it's shocking. Again, as a first-time viewer, these are things I've never expected to see on this series. Even when I talk with my friends in the area about what I've seen on the TV series, again, some of them having vague recollection and some of them never seeing it before as well, I will sometimes get a response, this is Little House? Nodding my head, I will say, Little House is not what you think it is. And that's why this series ugh, is so awesome. And with that, let's get to finally rating this episode. The long takes, the really long takes that just seem to drag on. That's why they're long takes. And why am I introduced to somebody named Dolly? Why, why, why? And what is the whole deal about having the school? I know it's something Caroline talks about in the very beginning, and it gets delivered halfway through this episode, but its only purpose was really to expose that Ben Griffith had dug up Zachariah's wife to steal the gold. We could have totally done that some other way. So this episode's biggest problem was its running time. I applaud the effort for going big on this season finale. This could have easily been another one of those 75 special length episodes, you know, like the Hunters. But it should go without saying that this episode's real saving grace, taking us outside of Walnut Grove and showing us, showing Laura, because you know, this show is her perspective, that the world out there can be a dangerous place. 
And in saying this, I'm immediately reminded that earlier, Laura did kind of already witness a murder when Mr. Olson decapitated Harriet, but it's Halloween and it's immediately revealed that that is not the case. But this was something different. So with that, we are giving season three's finale, Gold Country, 4.5 bonnets. And with our final rating of the season, it's time to finally rate the season. And I will confess, I have started to learn how to use Google Sheets even more. So tallying everything up, or you know, entering the shorthand key into the spacer bar, season three's bonnet rating comes out to 4.3375, but giving it the benefit of the doubt, we're just going to round it up to 4.5 for season three, because season three was awesome. Some of the season's low points, sorry, according to my own ratings here, uh, one being the blizzard. I liked this episode a lot, except for the fact that we had so many new people introduced to it. And even when we have the death in this episode, we never find out what happens to the rest of the family. As action-packed as it was, it was just simply overcrowded. And once again, to have animals as a central character in the episode, ugh. Bunny was one thing, because at least Bunny had a story arc. And of course, we were there at her birth. It's like she's one of the family. But Fred, yes, the highlight about Fred is that it was nice to have a slight change of pace between all the drama that had been happening in season three up to that point. And then sadly, I did enjoy getting to know Anna, but I just wanted to get to know her more way back in the music box. But instead, I got pushed closer and closer to my threshold on bully burnout. And aside from those episodes, everything else is four and a quarter bonnets or higher. So again, season three was just awesome. And although this didn't affect the overall rating of the season, I would love it if they put back John Rose's original score and not this sort of whimsical, more up-tempo, and maybe, I don't know, slightly misleading opening music. And with our final rating of the season, we are now moving on to our award ceremony. Our first award goes to favorite old-time word, and it seems as though throughout season three and season two, the use of older vocabulary has kind of fallen to the wayside, unlike season one. But season three's word is Dad Burnett. From Jason, Laura's scientist boyfriend, to Mr. Olson, to Carl, even to Laura, Dad Burnett kept coming up over and over again. Again, I don't know if there's anything old-timey about it. It just has now kind of stuck with me after hearing it so much. Our next award is for best use of food. And that goes to Mr. Edwards and his use of raisins and sugars to make his special turpentine. Because without his special turpentine, we wouldn't have an intoxicated goat. Oh man, season three and it's action. I mean, right off the get-go, we start off with a runaway wagon carrying a, a sickly Reverend Alden. Pretty much any of the storylines that involved Bunny 
even Harriet Olson's wild tour of the unnamed city where she purchased Sparks the Thoroughbred, the entire Blizzard and Fred episodes, and that was just the first half of the season. But what episode happened halfway through this season? The Bully Boys. And that is why this season's best action scene goes to Mary, Laura, and the rest of the female student body as they take down Bubba Gatlin. We've seen Laura get down and dirty once or twice already, but to see Mary on her feet slam her pail up against Bubba's head and then proceed to get on top of him, awesome. And it was just really cool because we are envisioning a time, 1870-something, again, where women or girls are definitely not considered on the same level. And here they are as a group demonstrating don't mess with us. It still just brings a smile to my face and sometimes some goosebumps. Not on my face. Moving on from our best action, we then move on to our most cringiest moment. And oddly enough, it also comes from that same episode. The scene in which Caroline comes to town and then is accosted by George and Sam Gatlin. She comes to town to sell eggs and they just corner her right in the middle of the day on the bridge, which is pretty much right in the middle of town, and continue by putting their hands on her arms as well as on her face. The close-up camera work that just made me feel really claustrophobic, and last but not least, that prominently placed phallic carrot. Ugh. Again, that was somebody's choice to include that. And moving on from that, it is now time to announce season three's best couple. And it's not to Charles and Caroline, Harriet and Mr. Olson, or even Mr. Edwards and Grace. In fact, season three's best couple, oddly enough, is a throuple. And it goes to Willie and his corner and the outhouse. Let me ask you this. How many times can you count Willie coming out of that outhouse, heading to that outhouse, or going to the corner in this season? I rest my case. After hearing that, you're probably thinking WTF, which is perfect because that is our next award. Season 3's WTF moment. Well, we had a few of them, actually. From Charles accidentally getting shot by Laura, little Carrie falling down that mine shaft, air shaft, to Nellie Olson handing poor little Anna the tongue twister, Peter Piper. But those are all pale in comparison to Ben Griffin desecrating a body to steal gold. Oh my goodness, just saying it over and over again, it just, it still shocks me. So, congratulations, Ben Griffin. We are moving on to our best dress category, and we are going to start with best dressed male. However, gonna do something a little different this time. Instead of our best dress single male, we're gonna go for our best male outfit which goes to the orange, yellow, black, and some other color plaid shirt that Jason, Laura's scientist boyfriend, 
and Seth Johnson both wear in this season. However, I will play favorites and say Jason did wear it better by accessorizing with a hat and the suspenders. And best dressed female goes to Amelia Stokes. Right off the get-go, we know Amelia is different because as she gets off that stagecoach, her hair is down. And we rarely see any women with their hair down. And, you know, when we see her here, she's also dressed for traveling. But when we see her back at her father's place, she also isn't dressed very much like the rest of the mothers, wives in the Walnut Grove area. She doesn't have her shirt tucked in. She has a belt. She still kind of follows tradition and dresses nicely and puts her hair up for church. There's actually one other scene where she has her hair up, but most of the time it's down. Her father might be trying to change what his grandson's name actually was, but for Amelia, she's not letting or changing her life from when she was living on the reservation to now. And that's what makes her style of dress the best. She's just 100% confident. And from there, we are now moving on to our MVPs. As a soft reminder, it's broken up into three categories. Guest star, one episode, supporting cast, and main crew. And while season three had a number of guest stars, guest characters, again, going big at the very beginning with Johnny Cash, to Academy Award winner Burl Ives, all of the Gatlin brothers, you know, because you can be pretty awesome at being bad, Oh, and I guess we can throw John Sanderson Jr. in this category as well. But truthfully, our award, best character in a single episode, goes to Solomon Henry. I mean, this topic, this story from 1977 is pretty awesome. And Todd Bridges, I had never seen him before anything in Different Strokes. I mean, that kid killed this entire episode, so it is appropriate that his name is in the title. Next up is our best character in the supporting cast, and I have to admit, this one was pretty close. And for two years in a row, that award goes to Mr. Edwards. I mean, in addition to just being an all-around good guy, Mr. Edwards always tries to make himself available if he can but it's more how his character has continued to grow. And yeah, we know he's not perfect, and that's kind of why we like him. We got a series of three episodes, pretty much in a row, that demonstrates Mr. Edwards' love for the Sanderson siblings. Heading out into the middle of a blizzard to rescue Alicia and Carl, having a hard time learning to let go of John Jr. as he tries his own way of life, Lastly, taking care of little Alicia when she had mountain fever. And the best thing about that is, that, again, how it referenced his past life. Plus, he has no problem calling Charles on his BS when they were out working on the tunneling. And finally, Mr. Edwards has learned how to read because he read that article and brought it back home. So Mr. Edwards is making a full circle here. And the last award is for our best main cast character, which again is mostly limited to everyone in the opening credits. 
And I know at some point I need to think about Laura actually being the recipient of this, but at this time, she's still kind of a little pest. And I think this season had Caroline a little bit more traumatized than anything else. And while seeing Charles go into evil Charles was interesting, that's right. Once again, this season's MVP goes to Big Sister Mary. Taking on Johnny Cash in the season premiere was pretty awesome, but then taking a blow to the face from Bubba Gatlin and then at the end taking him down, awesome. Leading her sisters to find shelter in the middle of a blizzard, awesome. Being the reason we don't have John Jr. on the series. I got a little mixed feelings about that, but still kind of awesome. However, I still have to question her decision on letting Laura go and leave some raspberries for little Alicia while she was under the mountain fever. And although she does kind of play the martyr in To Live With Fear and the election, she, just like Mr. Edwards, is willing to call out BS when she sees it, especially when it's to people who do not deserve it. Again, I'm talking about Anna and Laura's behavior to Anna. She might be a goody two-shoe. She might be a nerd. But it doesn't matter because she's still awesome. And well, those are just some of my thoughts and feelings about this episode and this season. And as always, I wouldn't mind hearing any thoughts or feelings you have about this episode, season, or any previous episodes or seasons. From Plum Creek with Love at gmail.com, as well as the Instagram account. This also concludes any additional songs added to the Season 3 from Plum Creek with Love playlist on Spotify. As I mentioned in my previous podcast, after I complete a season, I usually take a small hiatus. This time, I'm going to be taking a slightly extended one. But to tie things over a little bit, in two weeks... Yeah, two weeks, but it looks like it's going to be three. But I'm going to drop a special kind of recap anticipating episode uh, in regards to what is going to happen next in Little House on the Prairie. Um, We are a third of the way done with the entire series, or I should say I'm a third of the way done with the entire series. So I feel after this, we're going to have some sort of shift in a little bit of our storytelling. So, and if we are doing some counting or numbers, whatever correctly, we also might be getting to the point where Laura is entering those tween years. So, goodbye to childhood. So again, special episode there, but new content will be debuting on the 20th of June. So again, hit that subscribe or like button to get those episodes when they come out. And lastly, I just want to say a special thank you to everyone who has been listening up to this point. Longtime listeners, new listeners, Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this podcast and these ramblings from me about this beloved TV series. And with that, we come to the end of another episode of From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez, and until next time, take care. Yeah.